Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, April 22nd. In today's news, the first coronavirus deaths in America occurred weeks earlier than previously thought. The CDC director warns that the second wave of this contagion will be even more devastating. And a new VA study shows that unproven drug President Trump keeps hyping is linked to higher death rates. But first, the big idea. Skylar Herbert loved dressing up and performing. She adored going to kindergarten. She started reading at the age of four. Her grandma Leona says she could take over a room. About a month ago, Skylar started to complain of headaches. Within days, she was hospitalized in the Detroit suburbs where she was diagnosed with COVID-19, the disease caused by the coronavirus, and then with a rare form of meningitis caused by COVID-19. Her brain started swelling. She was placed on a ventilator. And on Sunday, despite the best efforts of doctors, as her family watched, the five-year-old became the first child in Michigan to die of the coronavirus and one of a handful of pediatric deaths in America. Schuyler's death stands as a heartbreaking exception in a pandemic that has largely spared kids, even as it ravages older populations and people with underlying medical conditions. Schuyler was both young and had no pre-existing conditions. Her death serves as a reminder that this virus can present peril to people at any age. As of this morning, about 45,000 of our fellow Americans have been killed by this invisible enemy. We have 813,000 confirmed cases nationwide. In Michigan, about 1% of their 33,000 cases have been in patients younger than 20. The average age of coronavirus patients who die in that state is 74. But losing little ones is obviously especially tragic. I wish you could see Skylar's picture right now. I've had it open on my computer monitor all morning. She was really an adorable little girl. She lived with her mother, Lavandria, a Detroit police officer for 25 years, and her father, Eddie, a city firefighter for 18 years. They lived in a working-class neighborhood with one of the highest rates of the coronavirus. Skylar's story disproves the myth that children are safe. The family has agreed that the hospital can use Skylar's tissue to research COVID-19. Over the course of this pandemic, Boston Children's Hospital has admitted 25 kids with coronavirus. Mount Sinai Children's Hospital in New York City has admitted about 20 kids with covid Children's National Hospital here in D.C. reported a steady increase in cases of minors, as did Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. At Seattle Children's Hospital, 1% of kids who have been tested have the virus. The good news is that most children who do test positive appear to experience severe symptoms at far lower rates than adults. Most of the kids who have gotten sick enough to require inpatient treatment have underlying conditions. At the Philly Children's Hospital, for example, a doctor we talked with said about 25% of their patients who've tested positive have asthma already. Some have been cancer patients, a couple had diabetes, and two were transplant recipients. 
While Skylar did not suffer from underlying conditions, she did fall into other categories that put her at higher risk of contracting the virus. She was African-American, and CDC data shows that black patients account for a third of reported cases, even though they comprise only 13% of the total population. And Skylar's parents have jobs that forced them to continue working outside the home when others were staying in. Now, Eddie and Lavandria are trying to figure out how to have a funeral for such a vibrant girl during such a dark time. And they haven't come up with an answer. But they both say they want the world to know Skylar's life and death serve as a message to take COVID-19 seriously. As Eddie put it, quote, this could have been your kids. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, health officials in California disclosed overnight that at least two people who died in early and mid-February had contracted the coronavirus, signaling that it may have spread and claimed lives on American soil weeks earlier than previously known. Tissue samples taken during autopsies of two individuals who died at their homes in Santa Clara County, California, tested positive for the virus. Santa Clara County is where San Jose is, in the Bay Area. The victims died on February 16th and February 17th. Initially, the nation's earliest known coronavirus fatality was believed to have occurred on February 29th in Kirkland, Washington, a suburb of Seattle. In March, health officials there linked two February 26 deaths to COVID-19. But these new Santa Clara County fatalities push the earliest fatality back quite a bit, altering the whole timeline of our outbreak. It's not yet known exactly how the two people became infected. But Sarah Cody, the county's public health officer, told us that the cases are believed to be community transmissions. They don't think that these people had any travel history outside that area, but they're still trying to confirm that's the case. The connection between the February deaths and coronavirus didn't become apparent until now, April, due to strict limitations that were placed on testing at the time of their death. Both of the Santa Clara County deaths occurred as the CDC had tightly restricted tests to only those who had displayed respiratory symptoms and who had recently traveled to China or had close contact with someone who was infected. Cody says local officials had to call the CDC and discuss the specifics of individual cases before they could even get permission to conduct a test. Number two, even as states move ahead with plans to reopen their economies, the director of the CDC warns in a wide-ranging interview with the Washington Post that the inevitable second wave of the coronavirus will be far more dire because it is likely to coincide with the start of flu season. Robert Redfield explained that we are going to have a flu epidemic and the coronavirus epidemic at the same time. He said that having two simultaneous respiratory outbreaks will potentially put unimaginable strain on the healthcare system. He says federal and state officials need to use the coming months to urgently prepare for what lies ahead. As stay-at-home orders are lifted, he said officials need to stress the continued importance of social distancing. They also need to massively scale up their ability to identify the infected through testing and to find everyone they interact with through contact tracing. Doing so prevents new cases from becoming larger outbreaks. 
asked about the appropriateness of protests against stay-at-home orders and calls for states to be liberated from restrictions, a term that Trump has embraced. Redfield answered, quote, it's not helpful. South Carolina, Georgia, Texas, Tennessee, and Florida have announced limited easing of business and recreational closures and social gatherings starting between this week and the end of April, which is next week. While some of those states have shown a fall in confirmed cases on recent days, others have seen increased numbers on other days. None of the state's easing restrictions have charted the sustained 14-day downward trajectory that is outlined in federal guidelines, the ones issued last week. Trump, speaking at last night's White House briefing, said the guidelines weren't mandatory. States can do whatever they want, he said. In addition to a sustained reduction in confirmed cases, the federal guidelines also said that hospitals need to be able to treat all patients without crisis care and have a robust testing system in place before moving to what the guidelines call phase one reopening. It does not appear that any of the state's relaxing restrictions have met these thresholds. Six Republican governors across the Southeast have formed their own coalition to discuss reopening the economy the way that governors in the Northeast and on the West Coast did last week. Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, Tennessee, Alabama, and Mississippi are part of it. These six states have collectively tested one-tenth of one percent of their total populations. Meanwhile, there continues to be dysfunction at the highest levels of the federal government. Rick Bright, one of the nation's leading vaccine development experts, has been ousted as the head of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, a non-political post, after clashing with his boss, a Trump appointee, the Assistant Secretary at Health and Human Services. Bright has been demoted to a narrower role at NIH. And we're learning that there has been a potentially major cybersecurity breach. Nearly 25,000 email addresses and passwords, allegedly from the NIH, the CDC, the World Health Organization, the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, and other institutions that are battling the pandemic, were dumped online by unknown actors. Site Intelligence Group says the information was released Sunday and Monday and then almost immediately used to foment attempts at hacking and harassment by far-right extremists. The lists appear to have been first posted on 4chan, a message board notorious for its hateful and extreme political commentary, and later to Pastebin, a text storage site, and then to Twitter, and then to far-right extremist channels on Telegram, a messaging app. The largest group of alleged emails and passwords was from the NIH with about 10,000. The CDC had the second highest number with 6,900 usernames and passwords. The World Bank had 5,000 and there were about 2,700 World Bank logins. An Australian cybersecurity expert, Robert Potter, says he was able to verify that the WHO email addresses and passwords are real. He says the password security is appalling. 48 people at the WHO have password as their password, he said. He also said that others used their own first names or change me as their password. Potter said the alleged addresses and passwords may have been purchased from vendors on the so-called dark web. Number three, the anti-malarial drug that Trump has aggressively promoted to treat COVID-19 had no benefit whatsoever and was linked to higher rates of death for Veterans Affairs patients hospitalized with the coronavirus, according to a new government study. The study by VA doctors and academic researchers analyzed outcomes of 368 male patients nationwide, with 97 receiving hydroxychloroquine, 113 receiving it in combination with the antibiotic azithromycin, 
and 158 not receiving any. Rates of death in the groups treated with the drugs were worse than those who did not receive the drugs. Rates of patients on ventilators were roughly equal, with no benefit demonstrated by the drugs. A panel of experts from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, that's the agency led by Tony Fauci, part of the NIH, formally recommended against the use of the drug combination being touted by Trump because of its potential toxicities. The president claimed during last night's news conference that he was unfamiliar with the research. It was hard today to find a silver lining to finish with, if I'm being honest, but I tracked one down in Canada. High school kids in Calgary came up with a way to help lonely senior citizens who have been isolated by the contagion. They call it the Joy for All Project. By dialing 1-877-JOY-4, the number 4, all, callers can hear pre-recorded, continuously updated messages tailored for the elderly who are all alone. People needing company can dial the number and hear messages of encouragement. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, April 22nd. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.